Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, vaccinated jurisdictions around the world are starting to offer a third COVID-19 vaccine booster to citizens. But some places in the world haven't even received a first shot. What are some of the ethical issues surrounding that? Ontario's PC party is under fire over a fake invoice that was mailed out to solicit donations for the next provincial election. Is it a mail scam or a sneaky way to get additional funds? Tasha Curitan will join us as well to discuss how the Bloc Québécois could deny Justin Trudeau his majority government. And the former head of Canada's COVID-19 vaccine rollout, Major General Danny Fortin, has now been charged with one count of sexual assault. What are the implications? We'll discuss it. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As of now, the United States says it's going to begin offering boosters or third COVID shots to its citizens beginning next month. Now, the country is just the latest jurisdiction to announce this measure, saying that it's supposed to help protect the citizens. But as Global's Dave Woodard reports, it brings with us some major ethical dilemmas. Dr. Kerry Bowman's a bioethicist at U of T and says offering the extra shot just doesn't make sense. The evidence for sort of broad third vaccines for, for massive population distribution um, is really not there at this point. Especially when he says that more than half the world's population hasn't received a single dose of vaccine. Ontario announced on Tuesday that it would begin third shots for vulnerable populations. Dr. Bowman says that's at least a responsible approach. The evidence even for, for the most vulnerable is implied, but not really there yet. But I think it's a good starting point. He says by micromanaging vaccine rollout country by country, we don't do anything to prevent the spread of the disease in low-income countries, which means we could see the virus mutate and become even more difficult to fight. Dave Woodard, Global News. Oh, well, it's controversial, as uh, Dave mentioned in his report here, and we're going to get into that in a couple of seconds. So pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Rodney Rohde. Uh, Dr. Rohde is a professor and chair of clinical laboratory services at the College of Health Professionals at Texas State University. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. hope you're doing well these days. Good morning, Bill. Same to you. Hope you guys are all doing well. Listen, before we get into the third vaccine stuff, I just want to, I'm sure you've seen the story, uh, a young family in uh, in Galveston, Texas, not too far from where you are, of course, down in the uh, the panhandle there. Uh, both of them diagnosed. They both said that they did not trust the vaccine, so they did not get vaccinated, nor did anybody in their family. Uh, both diagnosed, admitted to uh, the hospital on the same day, uh, both put on ventilators, and both died uh, in ICU, uh, leaving four children as orphans. And, and it's, a, it's just another one of these tragic stories, doctor, and you can't help when you hear things like that to say it didn't have to happen that way if if you know we we had this this belief in in the vaccination and the efficacy of the vaccination and what needs to be done here yeah it's it's a tragic just terrible story you know and it's unfortunately bill um it seems like almost daily now you know i remember when we first started talking i guess it's been over a year now yeah we talked about how that circle of friends and family and people that you knew was going to get tighter and tighter and it's literally into first contacts now uh, i i heard news yesterday of a from two members one from family and one from friend that had uh, family members in the hospital dealing with this and you know the story in galveston just breaks my heart that is just it's such a terrible tragedy and i just hope you know the country as well as the world will get over that hump if they're unvaccinated and understand how critically important this is uh, to get vaccinated because at the end of the day you're kind of flipping a coin uh, with people's lives you know you may be fine and you may not be fine and and if i'm going to vegas i'm i'm betting on fine so mm-hmm. i really hope people take that vaccine and understand that the science is there the efficacy the health is there it's one of the most studied vaccines in the history of vaccinology people just don't think it is but we've been looking at this for about 20 years so Let's hope people get over that hump. And, you know, again, unfortunately, I think sometimes it takes these tragic stories to maybe get somebody to move towards that that decision. And and you've brought that issue up, and I'm glad you raised it again, Doctor, because a lot of the stuff I hear from people that are still hesitant about this, uh, and, and there's the one element that are just anti-vaxxers. They're not going to get vaccinated no matter what, and so there's no sense in debating with them. That's Their mind is set. But the others that are sort of on the fence, like sadly the Rodriguez family, I, I guess were at some point, uh, one of the arguments they always present is, well, they just rushed through with this thing. I mean, they started with a blank sheet, and nine months later they had a vaccine. And that, as you've described to us, that's not the case at all. This has been going on for quite some time, before we knew about COVID. Yeah, it really has. Um, so, I mean, again, your audience may know this, but we had two other SARS outbreaks, one back in 02 and then yep. MERS, which is a form of SARS in 12 and 13. And so even far back as 15, 20 years ago, there were 
and are still ongoing looks at different vaccines for these different viruses. And even with the rollout of these three, uh, at least in the United States, that, that we've got EUA approval on, they have been put through more clinical trials with respect to people, the numbers of people, and the following of all the data than probably almost any vaccine in, in the near memory. So it's, it's just not true uh, that we haven't been studying these and watching for issues. And as you probably have heard from most experts, if you're going to have problems with vaccines, it's really in the first four to six weeks. I mean, if you're going to have major adverse events, and I'm talking about death and you know major issues with health, you're going to see that very soon. The other kind of minor things, and I'm not downplaying some of the things that have gone on with the vaccines, but when you put that up against COVID, uh, if you have no true medical reason, uh, you really should be getting the vaccine. We in this area know all about the 2002 SARS epidemic, of course, because it really hit the, yes. the, the Toronto area especially hard. I almost shut the city down, in fact, and I remember covering that extensively. And uh, you'd like to think that, yeah, we remember that. But but as uh, we need to put this in context, and I know that our, our medical experts up here are talking about, well, we need to educate these people that are not yet vaccinated. That's part of the story that they need to hear is that this is not something that was just pulled out of the air and said, hey, okay, I think we've got something here. Uh, you started this like 20-odd years ago. Uh, and and this is the result of it. It was accelerated, of course, when COVID came along. But you were you were close not close to the finish line to begin with. I mean, this started quite some time ago, and with this plethora of funding that governments all over the world started to give, it kind of pushed you over the finish line to where we are now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think you know you, you make a great point. I bet it's a point I've been trying to make in the last six months or so is that you know you've got those that are just not going to do it. You know, and we still aren't going to give up on them. We're going to keep trying. Mm-hmm. But there are a large proportion of the population that's kind of in that unsure safety kind of questionality. And so we'd really need to work on those. And perhaps, you know, the WHO, the CDC, and, and other departments of health and things like that need to really focus on, and I've talked about this a lot with you, I mean, we really need to bring in science communicators and people that know how to get a message across in a very effective and concise way. You can't keep pounding data at people. You've got to find a way to get messages across, you know, in a three-minute blip. That's the world we live in, and maybe yep. less. And you've got to get it. And, and, and we still need to have conversations with family and friends. That's what I do. We can all play a part uh, in this. And I recently convinced a family member um, to get started, had his first vaccine about two weeks ago. So I'm dealing with these challenges in my own family, Bill, even though I am a virologist and have the background, I, you know, People are going to believe what they're going to believe, and it's a challenging kind of environment. It is. Okay, let's go get in, if we could, Doctor, to the issue about this, uh, the third vaccination, which is not a new uh, situation. I mean, we talked about this even before the vaccine rollout started in a big way uh, because we weren't sure just how long it was going to be effective. And you heard just before you joined us here, Dr. Bowman uh, from the Toronto area, who's a, a, a you know renowned expert in this, and he's been well-quoted right. with his stuff. And, he's, and I, I got the sense that he and others have, have expressed some concern about this, but they're looking at the global picture and saying, well, should these people be getting a third dose before some people in the world are getting getting any dose at all and i understand that and that that's that's certainly got to be a factor in this but we're also seeing a, a great deal of evidence that's coming out i guess even in the last week or so isn't it doctor from uh, people like dr rolensky from the head of the cdc uh fda commissioner uh, dr janet woodcock and of course dr anthony fauci all of them saying look at it's been a while now that you know the vaccine's been out there for about seven or eight months now and we're starting to get some results about how effective it's going to be in other words how long and there are some current concerns here and uh, the, the, the data i've seen on this is that they say that after seven or eight months, uh, there's a chance that you, the, the effectiveness of the vaccine could wear down and a booster shot may be in order. Uh, there's science behind this. This isn't it speculative, is it? That's right. That's exactly right. And I think what they're doing, uh, in my understanding of everything I've read and talked to with experts on this, is that you know we're kind of at this window of seven and eight months. As you mentioned, we were hopeful it would be a year or 18 months, and it looks yeah. like, especially with Delta, again, this goes back to not being fully vaccinated around the world and so yeah. we've, we've allowed the viruses to change a little bit but having said that about seven or eight months it's looking like uh it's still preventing death it's still preventing severe covid disease it's really preventing people from getting into the hospital but what it doesn't appear to be doing is maybe stopping people from shedding virus and becoming vectors again uh, which again hampers our attempts with those who are unvaccinated so i you know i fully believe that that's kind of the the decision-making is to try to get that third booster into people, including healthcare workers and others, 
so that we kind of hopefully raise that titer again. It's going to spike that titer in your body of, of SARS antibodies and hopefully tie up as much virus as possible so you're not shedding. And so that's probably what the uh, decision-making is being so that we limit more spread. And then I don't disagree with uh, the earlier comments about global vaccination. Uh, the CDC, I know, has mentioned that they put out 50 million um, around the world. Their goal is to put out 100 million and then 200 million in the coming years. I heard that this morning listening to the CDC director. And she commented that, you know, we want to do both. So I, I think the answer right now coming from the United States is that we need to do both. We need to get a third booster, especially in the immunocompromised and healthcare workers, as a priority, but continue to supply the world as best as we can. And I, you know, I'm, a, I'm in total agreement about the global vaccination plan. It is a virus that does not care about borders. We need as much of the globe uh, immunized as possible one way or the other. And I'm afraid, unfortunately, one of the ways is going to be suffering through the disease for those who can't get it or choose not to get it. So we're coming up on our third year, Bill, as we hit January, December. So most pandemics historically usually run at least three years, if you look back, and that's even pre-vaccination. So, um, you know, I'm hopeful as we come into that third year, that one way or the other, we're going to start seeing this tamped down. I don't think it's going to go away forever. I think we're looking at some endemic disease, um, kind of like we see with flu. But hopefully the death rate and the severe hospitalization and things like that will, will be tamped down to levels that, you know, we, we are not talking about every day on the news. I saw some of the comments from Dr. Walensky and, and, frankly, from the president yesterday, too, that suggested, look, we have enough to do both. And uh, we don't want to forget that the, I know that the Americans, uh, you've been sending lots of doses all over the world, AstraZeneca and other doses, on a pretty consistent basis now to try to, to catch up with some of those other countries. And that's that's gratifying. But I'm, I'm concerned, as you are, about the vulnerable here. I mean, you know, the people that were first Absolutely. in line to get those vaccinations uh, back late last year and early into this year, uh, what this data is showing is that you know where they were 95 percent effective they might only be about 75 percent effective now uh because of that and and so you know that that's a it's a safeguard and i think it, we have to go down that road I, i'm not so sure of vaccinating everybody who wants one is, is that necessarily the best way to go but that's right. a decision they'll make that decision i guess in in the course of time but you made another point that i, I just in our remaining moments here want to talk about is that one of the reasons that the Delta variant is still out there, one of the reasons that it's it's such a danger to us right now, is because not enough of us are getting vaccinated. In other words, we always talked about herd immunity, and as long as that's not there, the chances of, of even the Delta variant uh, mutating into something else is, is the increase significantly, isn't it? That's absolutely correct. I mean, you just did Virology 101, Bill. <laughs> We've had so many conversations, Doctor. I think I'm, yes. some of it's rubbing off on me. Absolutely. That's what my wife tells me sometimes. You know, when, you, when you're around it and you talk about it, you actually do become better and better educated about it. And you're absolutely right. Viruses are diabolical, especially RNA viruses like influenza and coronaviruses and others. And it just it behooves us to get as many people vaccinated. And, and again, I said this earlier, it may become that the way this thing tamps down is, you know, both vaccination and unfortunately you know, people suffering through it and hopefully living through it so that you do have, you know, higher rates of herd immunity. If we don't get there, um, and I, I think we will. I mean, we obviously will at some point, but the longer it takes, the more, you know, morbidity and mortality we're going to have to deal with because that virus is just going to keep rearing its head and changing those those outer coat spike proteins and other things that makes it hard to find. So we really need to get vaccinated. We really need to keep up our mitigation measures whether it's, you know, masking and distancing and, and just being aware of your surroundings. I keep telling people, think of high-risk environments. You know, you can live your life and you can even have some fun and kind of have a, a decent, normal day. If you're just aware of your environment, you know, try to stay away from large crowds indoors of people you don't know. You know, try to do things outdoors. Uh, I'm continually wearing my mask when I go into places that I just don't know about. I don't wear it with family because we're all vaccinated. I don't wear it with my program here because we're all vaccinated as healthcare professionals. So it's just understanding your environment and trying to be um, part of the solution and trying to be we, not me. 
uh, with this in mind. It's about everyone, not just about yourself. Well, and as you've told us many times, and, and Dr. Moore, who's our recently appointed medical officer of health here in Ontario, reminded us on our show yesterday, uh, the more we do that, the, the sooner we can get back to what we want to have normal. I mean, right. we all want to we all want to go to a football game with 75,000 other people or whatever the stadium's going to be, uh, but you'd be a lot more at ease if you knew that the person beside you was vaccinated, and you don't have that guarantee right now. So the sooner we get there and the sooner we continue to wear masks in situations like you've just described, uh, the sooner we're going to cut across the finish line again. It's, so we do have a role to play here. We do. Each and every one of us has a role. And, you know, hopefully, as we keep talking about when we get on the show here with you, is that, you know, the golden rule uh, applies to everybody. It's not just it's not just a statement. It's uh, caring about other people, people you don't know about. I don't know who's down the hall that is that is on chemotherapy for cancer. I don't know who's HIV positive. I don't know who has asthma. I mean, there are so many people around us that we interact with every day that you just don't know their health history and they may not want to tell you. Mm-hmm. And so we really need to be considerate of that. And that is my goal and my message is that a mask is not that big a deal in the big scheme of things. A vaccine that is proven safe and efficacy is not that big a deal. And if you have questions, talk to your doctor and, and figure out what's going to go on if you don't get vaccinated and, and take measures to be careful if you're not vaccinated because you are at risk and you're putting others at risk around you. Absolutely. Uh, on that message, we'll leave it. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. I, I really do appreciate your input and your insight into this. Uh, stay well, and hopefully we can talk again soon. Absolutely, Bill. I hope you and all your loved ones are safe and healthy and take care, and we'll talk again soon. We certainly will. Dr. Rodney Rohde, professor and chair at uh, Texas State University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I got to focus on what's going on in Queens Park because that's a lot of the policy that we're talking about and a lot of the policy that we're being influenced by comes almost on a daily or weekly basis about COVID. And uh, for the longest time, of course, uh, the premier uh, said that he was against mandatory vaccination, uh, except for the fact that he uh, just the other day all of a sudden uh, gave word out that uh, there was a mandate that all of the Progressive Conservative Caucus had to be vaccinated. Uh, And apparently a couple of people have uh, not been compliant just yet. There's another story here that I want to get to in a couple of seconds, too. And to cover both of them, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Sabrina and Angie. Sabrina is the founder of the Queen's Park Observer. Always a pleasure, Sabrina. Hope you're doing well these days. Yeah, you know, they're keeping me busy at Queen's Park. <laughs> Never a dull moment there. What's what's the latest on this uh, this now mandatory vaccination for PCMPs, MPPs? Yeah, so I guess we'll we'll find out uh, at, at 5 p.m. today. That's the deadline for these two PCMPs that uh, are the last holdouts who haven't been vaccinated yet. Uh, and the Premier and the PC party, they're, they're kind of going to bring down the hammer on them. So they've, they've issued this ultimatum. Uh, the two MPPs, they... Their names were kind of ended up getting leaked. Uh, it's uh, Rick Nichols. You know, he's um, he's a very religious person, and, and I think he he stressed a lot at a caucus meeting um, his personal choice. I don't think that his his colleagues were very convinced that that was good enough. Um, and the other is Christina Midas. She's from Scarborough Center, um, and she hasn't she hasn't said much publicly or even to her colleagues about her decision. Um, and I do know that she she is uh, pregnant as well. Uh, and, you know, we do have the advice now that that is, you know, generally uh, safe for pregnant women to get vaccinated. Um, but, she, you know, she might have some medical concerns. And obviously the party would be okay if there were medical exemptions or even if someone um, had built up some immunity because they had a recent infection. But otherwise, it seems like if they can't... Uh, sh- show up with some of this documentation that they're going to be sitting on the other side of the aisle. How adamant are they going to be about this, Sabrina? What have you heard as you've uh, uh, talked to some of the folks in the hallways there at Queen's Park about this? I mean, as you say, one of them is, is expecting, uh, and she may just say, well, I don't feel comfortable with it. Is that going to be a valid excuse, or are they going to want medical evidence to say, no, this is not a good idea for that particular individual? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a pretty hard line they're taking. So if her doctor has recommended that to her, she's going to have to show some, like a doctor's note or, um, or something that's been signed off by a nurse. Uh, it's, it is a, a harsher stance than the premier has taken 
with uh, health and education workers, we know that he's stopped short of mandating the vaccines there. So I think, you know, behind the scenes, there's a lot of talk of hypocrisy, um, you know, not just from the opposition parties who are saying it a bit more loudly, but even I think in some conservative circles as well. But uh, as we know, with with a federal election um, and increasingly with, you know, the landscape changing and, and people's attitudes towards vaccines changing, that this is certainly becoming a wedge issue. Well, that's what surprised a lot of folks, and I'm sure it did uh, in, in your circle at Queen's Park there, uh, because it was just hours before that that he had said and was questioned about, uh, you know, the idea, as you mentioned, about mandatory vaccinations for people in the education system, and, and, and he won't go that far. And then just you know, almost like a couple of minutes later, all of a sudden, yeah, but his own caucus have to do that. Must have caught a lot of people off guard. Yeah, and we, we've even seen the Premier um, evolve himself on this, and we haven't had many opportunities lately to ask him questions about it, mm-hmm. but, you know, uh, it wasn't too long ago that he was saying that he didn't want to have a, a split society. And obviously, we're not mandating vaccines, but these are very strict policies. Uh, I think the, the the silver lining to all of this is that we do have very uh, high vaccination rates in Ontario. And I think that the hope is that this sort of closes the gap uh, for the, those last holdouts who, who might still be unsure, might not have, a, you know, a medical reason that they're not getting vaccinated uh, because we're, we're staring down the Delta variant and, and basically every expert is saying that we're going to have a surge in cases. Sabrina, has there been any, uh, well, I know what the reaction has been from Andrew Horvath and Stephen Del Duca. You know, obviously this, this is great fodder for them to go after the government again. But, but are they mandating vaccinations for their, their caucus? I mean, I guess in Del Duca's case, it's only a handful of people anyway, so it doesn't, it's not a, a monumental thing. But, I mean, on principle, are they going in the same direction? Yeah, they've um, they've all come out publicly and said that they've uh, all their caucus uh, has been vaccinated. They they haven't um, specified about their candidates as well, which is uh, I guess what the conservatives have said. I don't know if the conservatives have even canvassed all their candidates. I mean, obviously we're a little farther away from the election, um, and they have a bunch of incumbents anyway, uh, but. Yeah, you know, the other parties have been very um, braggadocious, if I can put it that way, about, about their <laughs> MVP's vaccination status. Uh, and, you know, we even saw Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader who doesn't have a seat in the House. He was calling for mandatory vaccines for elected officials, MVPs that do have a seat. And the, the I guess, you know, Del Duca said that as elected officials, they should lead by example. And certainly that is the line um, coming from the premier's office now as well in uh, justifying the, the measures that he's taking with his own caucus. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, it gets a little trickier when it comes to MPPs and, and, and mandating that. The speaker shut that down pretty quickly. MPPs have parliamentary privilege. Uh, they can't be barred from voting in the House, that type of thing. So, um, I think that we're we're going to still probably see the masking mandates and distancing and all that stuff in the house, uh, and maybe more <laughs> Stephen Del Duca soon too. I, I love how you do the segue, Sabrina. Uh, speaking of that election, which is coming up in June of next year, uh, what is this about this? Uh, this it, it's a fundraising letter for all intents and purposes, I guess, uh, that the, the progressive conservatives are taking a lot of heat for right now. It, it's it's supposed to be, I guess, to ask people to donate, but it's basically uh, it's, it's, it's designed as an invoice. And it's, it's, I, th- I think it's ticked off a lot of people here. Yeah, you're right. And it, it is kind of funny. I, I guess I've just as a quick aside, I thought that with a federal election, it would be quiet at Queen's Park, but it's certainly not. I mean, so, uh, you know, typically when there's a, a federal election going on, the provincial party kind of backs off their fundraising um, just because they might share some donors. Uh, it's tough times right now. And obviously the federal parties can use all the money they can get during in the middle of a campaign. But what's going around now is this uh, invoice styled uh, fundraising letter that was actually sent to uh, old school donors, people who haven't donated in a very long time. I actually spoke with one person who received the letter. He was in Kingston and he told me that he hadn't donated since before Tim Hudak was leader. So that's quite a few years. And he was really upset. Um, He likened it to uh, Trump style tactics and uh, was worried that people uh, might look at it and, and think it is an actual invoice or a bill that has to be paid because that's basically what it says on there. And 
it, it looks pretty legit. The, the logos, the PC Party logo is there. It says invoice a bunch of times in big letters. It's signed by um, the PC's chief fundraiser, Tony Miele. And, uh, you know, this, this guy in Kingston was like, if anything, this is going to turn me off the PCs even more because if they're willing to mislead me on something as simple as a fundraising letter, what else are they willing to mislead me on? Well, and, uh, somebody sent me a copy of this, and, and I'm looking at it as you were describing it, and it says on Terra PC invoice right there, as you mentioned, uh, description quantity one total eight hundred dollars, and at the bottom it says balance due. Now that's that's going to confuse a lot of people, especially you know seniors who are looking at their bills every month and figuring it says balance due. My God, that's another bill I have to pay. I didn't expect this. That they're going to feel that there's an obligation here, and I I don't know if that was the intent or not. Maybe this was all done tongue in cheek, but uh, I don't think anybody's laughing at it. Yeah, I think legally it's a bit uh, of a gray area right now. Uh, we do the opposition parties have asked Elections Ontario and the OPP's uh, anti-fraud uh, rackets branch to look at into it. But you're right. Uh, I, I think it could confuse seniors. It could confuse a lot of newcomers who might not really understand what they're looking at, uh, and people who might not have even donated. Otherwise, uh, we we haven't heard from the party on this, but. Uh, actually, this is just a, a very fast-moving story that uh, we heard on uh, another radio station, Jerry Agar, uh, over at News Talk. Uh, apparently, the only one that's heard from the premier on this, and uh, it, it wasn't a live conversation. It was just uh, Agar sort of relaying what happened, and uh, it sounds like the premier has taken ownership for it, uh, and he's really upset about it, and there's going to be an apology letter out there, but Again, I'm sort of just telling you this secondhand. We haven't heard anything official. So um, I think this is not going to die anytime soon. Well, he's got to wear it. He's the premier, and I know he knows that. And, we, you know, we've talked to him about some of the other controversial things that have gone on. And, and to his credit, he stands and says, okay, I'm, I'm the guy at the top, so I have to take this. But somebody, somebody's going to get hauled into the office for this and say, what, what the hell were you thinking? Yeah, it's just really bad optics. Um, there was even a, a, a reporter who went down to the office that was listed on that invoice uh, because it's, there's a marketing company that's involved in this as well. So there, there's lots of unanswered questions around. But uh, it was a really tense situation between the reporter and the people at the office. Um, I just think that they should really come out the sooner they can come out and, you know, uh, put out this fire instead of making it a, a you know, giving it oxygen like I said, us reporters at Queen's Park might be feeling a little jealous of our colleagues at the federal level. I mean, I know all of us are uh, hungry right now for news in the summer. I think that this is only going to work out in the PC's favor if they uh, like own up to it, come out, you know, say it openly to everybody and try to put it to bed. Well, that's what's surprising about this, because it was just a couple of days ago, remember, the premier said, look, I'm staying out of this election, and he's pretty much told his, his cabinet and his caucus, stay out of this, you know, no comments, nothing else, just let these guys do their own thing. So I guess, you know, people like yourself in the Quebec, in the, uh, rather the Queen's Park Press Corps probably figured, oh, this is going to be another quiet five or six weeks, uh, anything but if this is any indication. So uh, it's, it's, it's going to be a lively place no matter what. Keep us posted on this. I always watch for the updates for you. Thanks so much for the time today, Sabrina. Yeah, thanks, Phil. Take care. Sabrina Nancy, the founder of the Queen's Park Observer. And you can always uh, check that out online to get the latest on what's happening at Queen's Park. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tasha Carter writes a fabulous piece that was published in the, uh, the National Post the other day about what I think is going to be one of the main battlegrounds in this election, and that, of course, is the province of Quebec and uh, the impact that that's going to have. And if the uh, the Liberals' uh, intended uh, purpose here is to try to get a majority government, uh, they're going to have to score some pretty big points in Quebec, and uh, there's a, a big, big challenge uh, in trying to do that. And uh, Tasha writes about it today. Tasha, of course, is a principal at Navigator and a lecturer at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University, and uh, she joins us on the program to talk about this. Great to have you back on the program, Tasha. Hope you're doing well these days. Oh, thank you, Bill. I hope so, too, for you. You're, you motivated me. I, I read the piece, and I said, okay, I still went right back and started going back through the history of this. And I, I remember covering this stuff back in the old days. Basically, the birth of the bloc with Lucien Bouchard and the Meech Lake Accord, and, and you know, they were a separatist party by all stretch of imagination. By definition, they really were. What is the bloc now? I mean, you raised that in the article, and I don't know that anybody has an answer for it. That's the bloc's biggest conundrum, because the bloc was founded as a separatist party. Its fortunes have waxed and waned. Right now, the question is, is it a party that exists to help Quebecers, I guess I say, live their best life in Canada, uh, affirm the French fat, get deals on things 
like uh, the uh, changes to the Official Languages Act to uh, support the Quebec aluminum industry, to even recently the daycare deal, which sure, Blanchet didn't do, but the idea is that Ottawa is being really good to Quebec and the bloc is there to represent Quebec, or is the bloc there to take Quebec out of Canada? Now, that is the question I think Justin Trudeau is going to raise because it is the Achilles heel of the bloc. What are they there to do? Because some you know, hardcore separatists will say you're not really, you're not really fulfilling what you're supposed to be doing, and uh, and I think that's that's the one thing that they may be vulnerable on during this election. And, and again, I don't want to go deeply too deeply into the history, but I mean that first election when the bloc was formed with Lucien Bouchard, I mean what they went fifty four or seventy five seats or something, and and I think we thought, oh my God, Quebec's gone. That's it. This is this is the beginning of the end for it. Uh, and uh, the, the referendums, etc. We know all that history, but uh, this is the question I, I, I wanted to ask, and I'm glad you brought it up in the piece here, uh, because Blanchette's the key here right now. The current leader uh, seems to be a pretty popular guy within the province, but you mentioned about you know are the, the separatists, are the extremists in the party uh, happy with the way he's doing it? What kind of an influence do they have uh, in the party these days, or are they just considered to be the radical wing of that party? Um, well, they do have an influence, and there's been actually some grumbling within the party of the way nominations were handled very recently. Um, there was a lot of appointments made as opposed to the nomination process. Uh, Blanchet was saying, well, you know, we gotta, we got to get our act together. We have an election to fight. But there's a sense that maybe there's an overriding because um, in the last election, he really did take this tack of tacking away from independence and moving towards the, we will get, we will work for you. We will represent you in Ottawa. And that seems to be what they're continuing this time around, but that's led to the grumbling. So they want candidates who will reflect that. So there is a tension within the party. Um, there's also a tension, I think, because the conservatives, you know, the conservatives have 10 seats. Um, the bloc is looking to strike points against both the liberals, but also the conservatives. And the conservatives have just come out now with this plan. I don't know if you read this um, in their platform, but it's, it's to do a contract with Quebec in the first 100 days mm-hmm. of their mandate. Um, to give Quebec the powers of a nation. And it's making some waves in Quebec, and I haven't seen it that much reported in the English media here, but in Quebec media, it's all over today about how the Tories are now courting the Quebec vote. So another wrinkle here for Blanchet to deal with. And your point about about how key Quebec is here, and I know people always say that, well, Ontario and Quebec, are, you know, because of the number of seats and the influence they have, the election's usually over by the time I hit the Manitoba border. Uh, but it's going to be a, a, a tight race this year. I mean, what happened in Nova Scotia sends a message, I think, uh, to, the, to the government, uh, the government that wants to get reelected anyway. Uh, we're not sure how much of an influence it's going to be. But Quebec is, it, that's the battlefield where p- political parties have died uh, and, or come back to life. I mean, we all remember Jack Layton's uh, NDP, Russia that got them into the official opposition, uh, that, and that goes back, I guess, as to the days when the bloc was not that popular. They were pretty disenchanted with with the way the bloc was handling it. it. Was was that the beginning of those grumblings, saying, "Are we a separatist party, or are we just uh, trying to be part of Canada?" Yeah, well, the grumblings with the previous leader before Blanchet was very separatist, and it was the sense was that that's why their fortunes fell to ten seats before Blanchet took the helm. That things had really. Uh, you know, gone south because that that message wasn't selling. It wasn't selling with the Parti Québécois either. Um, you have the Action, not the Action Démocratique, but the um, the uh, Conseil, Commissaire, uh, the CAQ, sorry, Conseil d'Action mm-hmm. Québec, um, which is now the the provincial party, and the CAC built on that separatist. You know, we don't want to quite leave, but we want more powers theme. So, so what Blanchet has inherited is this sort of general sense that separation, like this, it, it's really gone down the, the 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 hardcore separatist movement. But there are still people there who will raise this this specter continuously. So he's got to deal with it. Um, but at the same time, the prevailing sentiment is not there. So, I, you know, there's these things the conservatives, for example, are offering now in their platform, saying we want to have a single um, uh, Revenue Canada uh, form, because right now Quebec has its own taxation system. They're, they've been asking for quite a while to have a sort of harmonized um, deal with Ottawa on this. O'Toole is now saying we're going to go there, too. So he's actually trying to offer some of the same things the Bloc's saying that they want. Um, and that's interesting because he's moving more into that nationalist terrain, which will force the bloc even further, potentially, down the nationalist road. 
But if you, uh, if for the years who are scoring at home here, uh, the the idea about you know trying to treat them as a nation is is one thing. But on the other side, one of the other things that's included in that platform, of course, is scrapping the the national daycare program, which essentially is fashioned after the Quebec program. I don't think right. that's going to go over very well in that province. No, six billion dollars. Are you going to claw it back? Good luck there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something that was just the deal was just struck, you know, last week with a smiling Premier Legault and a smiling Prime Minister Trudeau. So yes, walking that back and saying now, okay, Quebec, you're on your own again for your program, it's going to be a very hard sell. So yeah, it remains to be seen um, how that how that's going to play and how he's going to square that circle. Well, and that's that's the the challenge, I guess, for all three of the main political party leaders here, including Jagmeet Singh and O'Toole, and of course Trudeau, is is how do you treat Quebec? I mean, you know, in 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 the old days when when you know, we were really concerned about separation itself, I mean, uh, Pierre Trudeau played hardball. I mean, with Rene Levesque and anybody else that was involved in that, and uh, the stare downs were were you know on a pretty regular basis these days. Uh, do you treat them with kid gloves now and simply kind of back away and say, what can we do for you? That, that seems to be the tact that that O'Toole's taking with this and. and well, frankly, you know, the Trudeau government's done pretty much the same sort of thing during their time in office. Yes, and I think that uh, that's, that has a possible backlash, too, because Western Canada in particular, but also in Ontario, say, well, wait a minute, why is Quebec getting more favorable treatment than the rest of the country? Um, we've seen this movie before, and we don't like it. So I think you, they have to walk a line. I mean, Quebec has a distinct culture. It has a distinct uh, part of the, the Canadian fabric. And, and today, I think, um, you know, with all the conversation around Indigenous reconciliation, for example, there are people who are openly challenging the two founding nations' story of our country. Um, that is something Quebec's very concerned about. And uh, losing its place demographically also, which is declining in Canada. Quebec's population is declining vis-a-vis the rest of the country. So there's a big concern in Quebec, a sentiment now of protecting Quebec and protecting its culture and all this stuff. And politicians are attuned to that. But they can't go too far because then it does anger the rest of the country. And there's a fairness argument, too. You can't just treat one part of the country with kid gloves and, uh, and ignore the rest or not give them the same kind of due. So I think the question will be, you know, every it's like in a family. Every kid, you love all the kids equally, but you live them, love them in different ways, right? Um, some kids need different things, and I think that's an analogy that maybe the, that you know um, our leaders could go to to make sure that other parts of the country get whatever they are seeking as well, which may not be the same thing as Quebec. Interestingly enough, though, and we've noticed this over the last number of years, I guess, Quebec seems to be on, on the leading edge of a lot of the issues that have now become uh, very popular, very important issues to the rest of the country, including the environment, by the way. Uh, we may not hear about that in, in the rest of Canada, but I know it's a, it's a strong sentiment there. Uh, they're not crazy about the uh, the oil and gas development in, in, over in Alberta and in Saskatchewan. Uh, wish the federal government would, would you know, not be as, as committed to that sort of thing. And, and, you know, it's a pox on both the Liberals and the Conservatives for that. Uh, and that's going to have an element in this and then there's the daycare program as well so how how can the conservatives actually make inroads when a lot of people are kind of looking at them and say we, we're not quite sure what you guys are all about here it's going to be hard and in fact people don't really expect them to make inroads in this election they're trying to keep the 10 seats they have the fight is really between the block and the liberals um for some of the reasons you just described quebec quebec politics skews um more left than the conservatives mm-hmm. traditionally generally more statist in its approach. And right now with the pandemic, that's even more so. You're seeing with vaccination, too. I mean, there's going to be vaccine passports in Quebec as of September yeah. 1st. Uh, you know, and, and O'Toole's not even making his candidates get vaccinated. So how's that going to work? Uh, you know, it, 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 there's a lot that they're, they're offside a lot of things. So I don't see the Conservatives making huge gains here. I do see the Liberals and the Bloc duking it out. And as I said earlier, the question is whether and how Justin Trudeau would play the sovereignist card to try and destabilize them and sow doubt in voters' minds about what their real intentions might be. NDP have one seat uh, as the House was dissolved. It's in the Montreal area for people that, uh, that uh, didn't know that. Uh, so it's, it's an urban-type area. Uh, are, are they dead in the water now when it comes to influencing Quebec? That was, was, was the late election an aberration? Yes, it was. And it's the Quebec tradition of native son politics. Um, Quebecers vote for their own. And you saw this. I mean, Brian Mulroney had two of the biggest uh, majorities in history in Canada. And it's no accident that he did well in Quebec. Quebecers related to him. He was a Quebecer. Um, Every time you see a Quebecer at the head of a federal party, they do have an advantage in Quebec. Um, And sometimes you have multiple ones who are, so you could say it cancels out. But you look at, um, you know, Justin Trudeau, when 
Um, we did a poll at Navigator about how uh, Quebecers see the leaders, how favorable they are to the leaders. And Justin Trudeau, actually, more people in Quebec, 50%, think Justin Trudeau actually understands people like them versus Blanchet, who's at 46%. Now, needless to say, O'Toole was way down in that polling. He was like 30 or something of that nature. So, you know, again, it, if you are from the province, you have an advantage. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, seeing the difficulty with him is he came in after Jack Layton, who was so popular, too. And people did not connect in the same way. So, yes, the NDP is, is kind of dead in the water. Well, Jack Layton played that card, didn't he, in that election? I mean, he had roots in, in the Montreal area and yep. certainly talked about that. And, and, and I guess they, they gravitated to that when they were looking for an option because they were disenchanted with the block. Uh, it's it's going to be interesting because I, I as I watch the, you know, the daily media conferences and I watch Blanchette, uh, he seems to be going down that road that you're suggesting here, Tasha, that's, you know, he's just saying, what's in this for Quebec? And even talked about that with the confidence votes in the minority parliament a year or so ago. Mm-hmm. What what can we get out of the deal? That, that seems to be the mantra right now, and it seems to be resonating with the voters anyway. Yes, it does. And I think that's partly because um, Quebec has achieved quite a bit. It's the same actual language that Jagmeet Singh is using uh, for the NDP and the rest of the country, where he's saying, look, you know what, we don't, don't give the Liberals a majority. This works really well here. We can get them to do what we want. And uh, that's what the bloc says, too, is that as long as there's a balance of power and we hold part of it, uh, we can get things for Quebec that otherwise wouldn't be obtained if you, you know, had a majority liberal or majority conservative government. So that argument, um, I think, does resonate with people because Quebec actually, you know, during the pandemic has done very well compared to other parts of the country. Atlantic Canada probably has done, I would say, the best overall. Mm-hmm. Um, but Quebec has managed in a difficult situation, you know, large major urban center Lots of people going in and out. Lots of connections with the U.S. Um, to Quebec as well. So, so you know, importation of COVID is a fear and a thing. But they've taken some much stronger measures than Ontario has for restricting movement. Now the passports, and the people are happy with it. So, you know, there are protests, but overall, Legault's ratings are really, really high. And with that in mind, as you mentioned, if they want to go after, especially if Trudeau wants to go after uh, Legault with what's uh, going on, it would probably be under the guise of the French language debate, which is only a couple of weeks away, of course. Is that going to resonate, though? Are they going to say, hey, come on, separatism, that's yesterday's news. Well, let's talk about what's going forward. That, that might be the tack they can take. How would Blanchet respond to that kind of attack? Well, that's the question. Blanchet has to walk the line of saying, you know what, um, we do have a good, but... Don't, you know, don't be complacent. I think that's how he will respond and say, yeah, right now, that's our, that's our position. We are, we are here to defend the interests of Quebec, but you, you better respect those interests or then there could be something more to do. And that maybe he thinks will satisfy the independence-minded voter. Um, uh, you know, I don't know if it will, but it, he can't go out and say we're a sovereign's party. If he does that, he will lose voters to, uh, to Trudeau. Definitely, there will some who will just be spooked and say, like, no thanks. Um, so he has to he has to be a, a nationalist, but not, I think, an independentist in this particular election. Quebec is pivotal. Uh, great piece, Tasha. I invite people to go to the webpage. It's still up on the webpage uh, and uh, check it out for themselves uh, to get an indication of just how uh, it's going to happen in the La Belle Province. Uh, thanks again for the time today. Great talking with you. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope. Thanks, Bill. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Tasha Carradine, Principal at Navigator and, of course, a lecturer at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University and a fabulous writer uh, with a great uh, reputation in journalism as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Concerns about sexual misconduct in the Canadian military continue uh, with charges laid uh, most recently, of course, against uh, Danny Fortin. Uh, you remember that name, of course. He was the guy that was in charge of the uh, the rollout program for the vaccination program some time ago until these allegations came to light. Uh, and he seemed uh, rather emboldened uh, by uh, his comments uh, when he uh, referred to uh, what was going on when he talked to the media the other day. He said this, in his opinion, was a political move. I am reluctantly and at my own expense forced to pursue two forms of legal redress. The first, to vigorously defend myself against the charge laid today in criminal court. And second, as a federal court, to consider the lack of due process accorded me throughout this ordeal. As the acting chief of defense staff told me, confirmed in his personal notes, the decision to remove me was a result of a political calculus. 
Well, on and on it goes. Uh, accusations back and forth, but uh, notwithstanding uh, the 410 compl complaints and the concern that he might have in his mindset right now is the overarching concern about uh, sexual misconduct in the in the military. And uh, are we dealing with that? Is the government dealing with that? Uh, Amanda Conley, Global News reporter, has been following this story for quite some time. She joins us on the Bill Keller Show uh, to give us uh, the latest on this. Always a pleasure, Amanda. Thanks for joining us today. Always a pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me. Given the fact that there have been investigations into past accusations like this, and well, even in the cases of McDonald, there were no charges laid after the investigation. Were you surprised by the charge laid against Fortin? I think what was surprising about this was that first we, we'd heard this coming up. This was uh, this was expected. This was uh, effectively kind of leaked to media the night before the charge was actually laid. Uh, certainly, that that often is, uh, is is unusual. We also saw again um, this this kind of. Uh, I guess, accusation off the bat by Major General Denny Fortin that there is a political calculation here, a political calculus, as he said, um, in, in the decision to remove him from this role. Uh, again, what we're really watching for right now is kind of how this plays out. Fortin is due back in court on Election Day on September 20th to enter a formal plea. That's when he'll be uh, he'll be there for the arraignment. And, and throughout all of this, again, as you mentioned there off the bat, the military really has been facing key questions about what it's doing to change the culture within the military to tackle sexual misconduct, which has been repeatedly documented as such an endemic and, and really pervasive issue throughout the forces. Really, all of the leadership here, including uh, the government, un has been under a very critical eye for their handling of this and why more hasn't been done to fix the problem. Well, and because uh, you've written about this and you've talked about this in the past on a program not too long ago uh, to do with the Vance situation and the McDonald situation, and, and you're right, the, not just the military, but the government is taking a lot of heat for this because uh, we've already heard from people that have come forward in the past and they've talked about the process uh, as they see it when they do report these things and about the possible repercussions from senior officers when they report these, uh, the inaction by some people about the you know, lackluster investigations. Uh, was this a situation, what Fortan seems to be in, indicating here, Amanda, is he saying, look, the government's trying to make a showpiece out of me because the other ones uh, didn't go well and, and they took a lot of heat for it? So I think it's, it's difficult to say, really, with any, any kind of certainty how much validity there are to, um, to, to the claims being laid out so far. Again, we, what we saw was really a very initial laying of the charge. We don't know um, what, what the defense is going to counter this with in terms of documents in the criminal trial here. What we do know is that Fortin has also launched a... Um, a case against the government in, in federal court, effectively arguing that his removal from the from the position of head of the vaccine rollout should effectively be reversed, that he was denied procedural fairness. And through those the court filings that his team has made in that second second case here, he has laid out kind of a timeline for the way that this probe played out, effectively saying that there there was an allegation made shortly after, but a month after Global News first broke allegations against General Jonathan Vance, uh, now retired General Jonathan Vance, who of course uh, has has denied those, and Fortin really saying that there there was some. Um, uh, some, uh, I guess, conflicting communication as, as he has cast it between folks in the military and kind of what he was being told about the state of that investigation as it was playing out before he was removed from that role publicly uh, back in, in May. And of course, just five days after being removed there, the case was referred to Quebec prosecutors, which certainly was a bit of an unusual uh, pace for that. We typically have seen with other leaders under investigation a much longer time frame that probe made public much earlier in the process. So there are a lot of questions kind of about the way that this case in particular has played out. But again, we're really going to have to see what actual information comes out through the court process to kind of have a clearer sense of, of what that timeline is and what the allegations are there. Did you get the impression from uh, from his comments that he feels as if he's, like you said, being a scapegoat here? Because, uh, I mean, we talked about the investigation in Abra and McDonald, and of course there were no charges laid as a result of that. And he essentially, went five minutes later, said, well, I want my job back. Uh, and that hasn't happened. I mean, you know, as, uh, Minister Sejan has said, we're going to review it and see what's going on here. But And we all understand the premise of innocent until proven guilty. These are allegations that need to be proven in court, uh, which is what this trial, I guess, is going to be about if it goes to that. But at the same time, common sense would indicate in some of the past what I think inappropriate behavior by the senior officers of the military, Amanda, to say, well, we'll just leave things be while we're investigating this. Should he not have been removed anyway while the investigation was ongoing? That really is the conversation that we've been seeing play out a lot uh, with, with, you know, defense experts and, and advocates for sexual misconduct uh, victims and survivors here. Again, really a, a nuanced conversation, but certainly noting that there, as you mentioned, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. That is really a key principle of the Canadian legal system here. But at the same time, 
there are standards that we expect from leaders in positions of authority, particularly in institutions like the military, where there is such a push underway to really change the the fundamental culture at the heart of it, right? That even, uh, we heard this with, with the McDonald case, even, even a finding of not enough evidence to lay charges may not be enough for them to come back into the job if there are questions about whether they have effectively, uh, as, as, as the government has put it kind of here, the, the moral authority to govern uh, or to lead really. That, that really is the key question is um, can someone, even if they are found to have not been guilty, be the best person to lead such a critical kind of role um, for the military at this juncture? And that certainly has been um, a, a really thorny question for the government to, to answer through a lot of this. Well, and uh, as we talked about when the, uh, the the verdict came down about the McDonald's situation, well, it was a non-verdict because they said they weren't going to pursue it anymore. Uh, as uh, some of our legal experts told us, that doesn't necessarily mean nothing went on. It just means they didn't think that they had a chance of a conviction if they laid a charge. And, and that happens an awful lot in the judicial system. Uh, and, but uh, obviously, McDonald's lawyers don't put that spin on it, and that's, I guess, what they're paid to do in situations like this. But the overarching thing and, and the foundation, as you've written about, I don't know how many times, is about the Deschamps report that was done in 2015 which should have addressed this. And, and the charges laid uh, yesterday against uh, 410, I, I guess, really exacerbate the frustration a lot of people are feeling. Like, hey, there was a template here and a blueprint for you guys to follow to, to make sure this doesn't happen again, and they're not doing it. I think that that's, that's really kind of the heart of the issue here that you, you identified. Is that there, there was this key recommendation made back in 2015 from the report by former Supreme Court Justice Marie Duchamp. And, and really what she had called for was an independent system for handling sexual misconduct claims within the military, something that is outside of the chain of command where the military hierarchy plays no role effectively in determining um, how these cases move forward, whether they are founded or unfounded, kind of when they get referred or if they get referred to civilian prosecutors. Uh, and, and really kind of what we've been seeing over the last couple of months, too, is a very different approach on, uh, depending on, on each case. We've seen a different approach with the, the case of Vance, a different approach with the case of McDonald, a different approach, a different approach with the case of Fortin. And really, I think that the, the lack of consistency and the questions being raised about the processes here really speaks to the fact that there is um, from many avenues at this point, a really urgent call for a better system to really get to the heart of this. And again, that that is something that 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 addresses the need to um, be fair both to the accused and the person who has come forward with allegations in in these cases. You need to, um, I think, really what we're hearing have have that um, that system in place to make sure that things are are working as they should, and that there really is procedural fairness for everyone involved right the way through. Well, uh, we're hoping that, uh, of course, the report that's uh, being accumulated right now by uh, Justice Arbour may actually shed some light on this. Great reporting on this, as always, Amanda. We'll uh, watch for the updates uh, over the next couple of days, but thanks for spending some time with us today. Thank you. Take care. Amanda Conley, journalist with Global News, who's been covering these stories, uh, of course, from our Ottawa Bureau over the last couple of months now. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.